Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In this episode, we're going to talk about the fantasy comedy cult classic, Groundhog Day. Then put your little hand in mine, there ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb, Now, the plot of this film, a cynical TV weatherman finds himself inexplicably trapped in a time loop, forcing him to relive February 2nd over and over again. When you have a podcast that's called Replay Value, what better movie to fit into that criteria than Groundhog Day, the ultimate Replay Value film? Uh, In a sense, we are replaying the movie along with the actors in the film. I mean, this is a movie designed to be replayed over and over again. It is. It's on the short list, and and I'm somewhat embarrassed that we're just now getting to it in season three. You know, it was just a matter of time. We did it. We're here, so let's jump right into the origins of uh, the the film, how it got made, and you have to start the conversation with the the genesis of the story with Danny Rubin. The writer of the film, it's his concept. He came up with the idea in 1990 as a newly minted screenwriter in Los Angeles. He hadn't been here long. Uh, he was reading uh, Anne Rice's The Vampireless Stott novel, and his imagination just started to take off. He started to think, what would it be like for a person to live for uh, etern- eternity, to, 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 to just not die? And all the trials and tribulations that the person would go through, uh, you know, would it be boring? It would, would they not have purpose? And, uh, and, and how it would alter them uh, going through that experience. So very much, uh, I hesitate to say lightning in a bottle, but more of a pure inspiration kind of light bulb above the head moment when he just took this seemingly simple idea and just ran with it. Now, did it go anywhere at first? No, but he was uh, a screenwriter that had one credit at the time. He had sold a novel for the movie Hear No Evil, uh, which was a thriller, but uh, you know, kind of put his name on the map, got him representation, but from there... Uh, he needed something else. So when he came up with the idea for Groundhog Day, which, you know, how did he settle on Groundhog Day? Well, while he was writing it, he looked at a calendar, and that was the next closest holiday that came up, and he felt that it fit the premise because, well, hey, no one... Groundhog Day is not really an over-celebrated holiday. There aren't Groundhog Day movies. Uh, at least there, were, there weren't back then. Uh, so this is something that could be associated with that holiday. So... Uh, but to begin with, though, what a stroke of brilliance! I mean, to, for him to uh, realize that, and it, it's true. I mean, it, the film is forever associated with that holiday. And you know, when he originally thought of the story, he approached it as a man living through eternity, like the vampire. It wasn't until he realized the cost, you know, being a, a an unproven screenwriter, the cost of the movie of a, of a character living through all these time periods. Uh, it was going to be a pretty expensive film. So he ended up changing it uh, to a character reliving the same day just to save money uh, with that, that, that story concept. And that's probably where he started looking for a holiday to associate it with. Right. That stroke of brilliance came from him being an unproven screenwriter. And so he wanted to take this idea to go into pitch meetings. And he knew if he's like, hey, if I've got this, well, you, know, you look at a movie like Cloud Atlas, which is like, hey, that is through eternity. But that's a bloated budget. It's a huge 
huge money poured into that film. He couldn't go into a, a producer's meeting uh, to pitch that to studios when he is an unproven screenwriter. So that stroke of brilliance came from him having to figure out a way to keep the idea, but keep it lean. And it just, it's crazy how well it worked out. Um, so he thought of Groundhog Day because again, like we've talked about before, he pulled from real life experiences. He actually worked uh, in a, for a local phone company as a writer uh, near Punxsutawney, and he had some familiarity with Punxsutawney Phil and the Groundhog Day Festival, which at that time is hard to believe now, but wasn't really well known uh, around the United States. Uh, it did not have much visibility outside of that small community. And it, uh, no doubt is a huge tourist attraction now. I'm sure the amount of people it draws there annually is uh, is went up uh, tenfold. Well, it, it, it did, but I'd love that you mentioned that. Uh, the film itself was not shot in Puxatawney. Uh, they uh, didn't choose that as the location. They ended up doing it in, in Woodstock, Illinois, but we see that all the time, Warren. You know, you, you've told me about films, the TV shows that are look like they're shot in New York, but are really done in like Vancouver because it's cheaper or something, or tax purposes, I'm not sure. Or even a back lot here in Los Angeles. And L.A. is one of those cities where there's so many different types of landscapes. I mean, you can go to Pasadena, and in certain neighborhoods, there's not a lot of palm trees, and it can pass off as just another any town USA. Uh, and a lot of stuff's been filmed out here as a result. But they did a lot of extensive location scouting. I mean, they didn't just make that determination just to not shoot it in Pennsylvania. Uh, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray are both Illinois natives, so they may have had something to do with it, but they ended up at the end of the day scouting 60 different towns before settling on Woodstock, Illinois. Oh, wow. Which is where they uh, shot about 90% of principal photography took place there. Uh, but going back to Danny Rubin, the writer, real, real quick, uh, spent eight weeks writing the script, and, and it was much darker uh, the first drafts that he wrote, it wasn't until the co-writer uh, and director of the film, Harold Ramis, came on board, uh, and he took the script in the film in a more comedic uh, direction. Uh, and even cameos in the film as the doctor, which is a, a pretty funny scene. Yeah, I love seeing Harold, Harold Ramis on, uh, on screen, so it was nice to see him as that cameo. But yeah, you talked about the early drafts of the script. It was very unfamiliar to the finished product. Um one thing that didn't change, though, is the cause of the time loop is intentionally left vague. Uh, Ruben was very steadfast about decide, deciding that that it shouldn't be known because he felt like the audience would be too bogged down to like the mysticism behind it or what 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 was the cause that needed to be focused on Phil Connors experience and what he went through as a person. So yeah, that's a good point. You're kind of waiting for a James Mason, heaven can wait type of character to show up and kind of tell Bill Murray's Phil Connors, you know, what the fuck is going on and tell him what he needs to do to get out of it. But we, we never get that. And the movie's better for that. You don't know Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, when Harold Ramos came on board though, he, um, he basically gave, Ruben a, a choice. He's saying, you know, we can get this made, but we can go one of two ways. Uh, do you want to keep more creative control and do a smaller budget? Uh, like, you know, probably around the, I read it was like $3 million is what they felt, felt they could get. Yeah. Or would you want to go to a studio in this case, Columbia pictures, you get more money, but they're probably going to want to step in and make some changes. And Ruben made the right choice. At the end of the day, he went with Columbia pictures because people are going to see your movie. It's going to get a major theatrical release, and it's going to get distributed around the country. You're assured of that. With an indie, small indie house, you never know. 
And I hate to say it because most of the time, like, oh, he's selling out. But in this case, I mean, good he sold out. I mean, he was a struggling screenwriter. I mean, it was by pure chance that his script even got passed on to Harold Ramis and that this movie had interest in getting made. So not only did he, you know, probably get a decent payday out of it, but the exposure of the film. And I, I feel like with Ramis involved in a studio, it was a better film for because at the beginning, it had a much darker tone to it. And even when you watch it now, it, there are some parts that are, it's not a, the, a straight up comedy like you think it would be. Um, so Ramis being involved, he really wanted to push that comedic aspect of it, but at the mm-hmm. same time, keep the core of Phil Connors's growth intact, but still have those classic comedy beats that you, or arcs that you would see uh, in a film. Yeah, he didn't want the film to lose its heart. Uh, you know, the uh, what originally made it great to begin with. And with the studio coming on board, they ultimately did end up demanding changes. One of those changes was initially Rita was going to be stuck in a time loop at the ending of the film and then just leave it, uh, you know, kind of a Sopranos ending cut to black and then we don't know <laughs> right. what happens. Uh, that's The studio didn't like that. It's kind of, you know, you don't, the audience isn't going to get closure. I think that's a smart choice. You can't really end it that way. Uh, maybe with a TV series, but I don't think it works for a movie. No, it wouldn't have worked for a movie, especially a comedy. But the, the yeah, the idea was Phil would break the loop that he was stuck in by confessing his love to Rita, who basically then would be passed on to her and she would do the loop and, and, and the film would end, which is you hear that idea out loud and it's terrible. No one would want to see that. And another change uh, that the studio had made uh, from the initial script was that the movie doesn't start in the loop. Originally, we were going to have Phil Connors just already stuck in February 2nd at the beginning of the film, but the studio felt it was important that the audience see his reaction to becoming stuck in February 2nd and and seeing that happen. And again, a a decision that is, I think the movie is better for that, uh, that you you see him set up because it also gives an opportunity for him to be set up as kind of the douchebag character that you, you see Phil Connors to be. So you get to see that antagonistic side of Phil Connors before he gets stuck in the loop. Yeah, but if if, if he was stuck in the time loop at the beginning, you would have to have some kind of exposition character show up and explain what's happening. You couldn't do that, both of those things, not have that explain what's happening and have it start in the time loop. So I think you have to kind of pick one way or the other for it to work. But the studio wanted that. They wanted that. Uh, they wanted it explained. Yeah, they, they did want it explained so much so that they, they said that they would not green light the film unless the time loop, uh, how the cause of it was detailed in the film. Ramus was against that. Ruben was against that. And it came to a point to where the studios, they, they basically said behind closed doors, Ramus was like, okay, hey, you know what? We'll put it on the shooting schedule. We'll do it at the very end and we'll run out of time and we won't be able to do it. And if we have to do it, we'll just edit it out of the film, but we're going to, we're not going to let that prevent it from getting made. Mm-hmm. So there was some give and take with the studio. The Ruben really wanted to have a narration by Phil Connors, but you know, that's you know, we've talked about most films that use that it's because of weak writing. Some films, it's it a works. slippery slope. Yeah, Fight Club, it works. And Medeus, Shawshank Redemption, uh, Shawshank Redemption yeah, Forrest it, Gump, it right. works. Yeah, but this one, it did, it did not need it, yeah. Production of the film started on March 16th, 1992 and lasted until June 10th, 1992. So 86 days of filming. 
as we said earlier, 90% of it took place in Woodstock, Illinois, uh, with some pickups done in uh, Los Angeles. And we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. This cast features two legit movie stars and four previous SNL cast members. Oh, four. Huh. Who who are the four? Do you, I'm trying uh, to Bill think Bill Murray, yeah. Chris Elliott, Brian Doyle Murray, and Robin Duke. Brian Doyle Murray was on SNL. Holy cow. Yep. I forgot about that. Wow. And we'll start at the top of the call sheet with Bill Murray as Phil Collins. Uh, let me see Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot. And we'll start at the, I'm a dumbass. And we'll start at the top of the call sheet with Bill Murray as Phil Connors. Before this movie, Bill Murray, I mean, he was already a bona fide movie star. Caddyshack in 1980, Stripes in 81, Tootsie in 82, Ghostbusters in 84, Little Shop of Horrors in 86, Scrooged in 88, Ghostbusters 2 in 89, and What About Bob in 91, all preceding the release of this movie. What a run. Wow. Fucking, yeah, just a a championship run by Bill Murray and just his ascension uh, into the orbit of movie stars. And I would, you would almost say, oh, this is got to be like peak Bill Murray at the climax of his career. But fuck, man. After this, Ed Wood in 94, Kingpin in 96, Rushmore in 98, uh, the the Royal Tenenbaums in 2001, and of course, Lost in Translation in 2003. Yeah, this was, I would say, peak comedy Bill Murray as we kind of knew him and as as I was represented in those 80s comedy classics. But this was very much a transition film. Yes, it was a comedy, but it showed a side of Bill Murray that a, that a lot of people hadn't seen on screen before. And when you know, Ramis recommended Murray for the role, Ruben didn't think he could do it. He did not think he could execute the depth of character that was necessary for Phil, for Phil Connors. And to Ramis's credit, he's like, Murray will, Murray will do what you need. He can make you hate him and love him at the same time. And when he was getting directed by Harold Ramis, uh, he would ask uh, Ramis, and, uh, good Phil or bad Phil? And so he just did such a great job <laughs> shifting between the two. Uh, and you know, Murray had his issues with Ramis, though. They clashed uh, over the script. Uh, Ramis was all about the comedy. We've established that. Uh, Murray wanted to go deeper. As you said, this is a transition of his career. This is the start of him starting to do serious work. And this movie proved he was capable of it. And it's, uh, as you said, a shift. He started to do more serious work after this. Um, but they, they clashed, and, and, and unfortunately, this was the last collaboration uh, they ever had. As, and quite a long partnership and quite a prosperous one. I mean, they dated way back to their second city days in Chicago. I should say that Murray was going through some personal issues, a divorce at the time. Uh, so, but after filming this movie, uh, they didn't really work. Even on speaking terms, uh, they did end up resolving that, uh, I think, in 2014 or um, you know, not too long ago, uh, shortly before uh, Harold Ramis passed away. They did actually resolve that conflict, uh, which, which is good to hear. But you think about the, the great other potential films we could have missed out on because of that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I would have loved to have seen them at least made one more movie together. Before we move on, I have to go ahead and anoint Bill Murray and... Andy McDowell as my co-MVPs. Really? I can't just give it to Bill Murray. I know it's an obvious choice. He's fucking great. And his performance is praised universally. I mean, he is sensational in the film. But Andy McDowell is 
fantastic in this movie and it's such a star performance she shines in every scene she's in and she has to do a lot she's got to play off a lot and she does it brilliantly and convincingly well she is truly the heart of the film i mean bill murray as phil connors is both the antagonist and the protagonist of the film which is difficult to pull off but he does it you know deftly and masterfully but like i said Andy McDowell is the heart of the film, and that, that's something that cannot be overlooked when selecting an MVP. So I, that, uh, that was surprising, but you pulled the co-MVP out there. I like that. Yeah, well, I feel like in this situation you have to. As great as Bill Murray is, I think you can't give him all the credit. I think Andy McDowell's performance in this film is underappreciated, and so I, I got to give her some, uh, got to give her her due. I will say when we get to the recasting portion, uh, she was the most difficult recasting for me. So she, yeah, she definitely brings to the table. It's, it's, a, it's a tall order. It's big shoes to fill. And she was hired based on her work in the 1991 movie, The Object of Beauty. And you would think that because it's a comedy, they would want a comedic actress to play across from Bill Murray. But that it was by design that they did not choose an actress that was traditionally associated with comedy. Amy McDowell has great comedic timing when needed, but they wanted someone that could pull off the compassion of the film and those scenes that you need it. And that's where Andy McDowell really, really brought it, brought it to the table. I think it goes with both characters. The actor that plays Phil Connors has to have comedic and dramatic chops as does the actor playing Rita Hansen. And, you know, Andy McDowell proven herself before this is too. Uh, she was in St. Elmo's Fire in 1985. Yeah. Sex Lies and Videotape in 1989, and then The Player in '92. Oh, The Player, uh, Tim Robbins. That's a such a good yeah. movie. I oh, love it. So great. underrated, criminally a, underrated. F- we are definitely season six, seven, maybe somewhere <laughs> yeah. in there. Um, yeah, maybe. I'll, jo- I'll jot it down right here. Um, <laughs> people listening are like, "What? The Player? Never heard of it." Go look up that movie and watch it if you can. It's great. It's got to be available somewhere to stream, unless it's in uh, what was it, streaming pur- pur- purgatory. Maybe. Uh, after this, Annie McDowell, Four Weddings and a Funeral in 94, her cl- climax of her career probably right there, the, 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 uh, the, mm-hmm. the peak. Uh, Multiplicity in 96. Oh, love that love movie. Love that movie. Oh, gosh. Uh, and most recently, Four Weddings and a Funeral television series uh, in 2019. Chris Elliott as Larry the cameraman. Kind of surprised how much, of course, he's familiar. You recognize him. But I was so surprised at how much shit he's actually been in. Oh, yeah. Uh, Before this, Manhunter in 96. Uh, Also did some Miami Vice episodes uh, after that. So you could tell (laughs) he had a friendship with Michael Mann. Oh, that's Uh, cool. And then The Abyss in 89, James Cameron. Cameron, yeah. Wow. Two huge film, great film directors he worked with before this movie. After this, Kingpin in 96. Yes. There's something about Mary in 98. So he worked with the Fairley Brothers. Uh, Scary Movies 2 and 4 in 01 and 06. And most recently, he was in Sandy Wexler, the Netflix movie. Stephen Tobolowski as Ned Ryerson. Uh, He was hired after a rather excellent audition. Apparently, he just went for broke and (laughs) they liked him so much they they casted him. Uh, But another. Surprised at how many big movies he'd been in, and I think this is going to blow your hair back, Phil. Check this out. Before this movie, uh, Spaceballs in '86, mm-hmm, yeah, Mississippi Burning in '88, Thelma and Louise in '91, Basic Instinct in '92, and Sneakers in '92. Just a uh, he is up there as 
just as a, such a great character actor, underrated, I would say, but recognizable. Like everyone knows him, but I would say he's most associated with Ned Ryerson from <laughs> from Groundhog Day. And I, it's not one of my favorite quotes, but I just love it <laughs> when I, it just says the the Phil Phil Connors Ned Ned Ryerson. I I just that exchange he just nails. I mean, just ah, it's so perfect for the character. Um, so, yeah, very well cast. Really, a uh, little Easter egg here. It's such a weird last name, Ryerson. And he actually played another character in the TV show Glee that was named Sandy Ryerson. Well, they did that because he played this. I would say so. They didn't make any other connections in the show Glee that I could you tell. You don't have to. But that's such a deep cut Easter egg, like Ryerson, you know, that, that you would okay. see that. Okay, so, uh, anyway. yeah. Well, uh, after this, he did Freaky Friday in 03, The Lorax in 2012. A lot of TV. What I know him from mostly is Californication yes. and uh, Entourage. He, and he, he even did uh, an episode or two of Curb. Uh, he, did, he did Silicon Valley, too. Um, oh, yeah, he was on that. Yeah, so yep. he's uh, yeah, but he got a great relationship with HBO, it looks like. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's one of those where it's like, hey, we got this guy in our pocket. We want to use him as a, as a They do piece. that, though. If you watch HBO shows, they use a lot of those uh, character actors. Oh, yeah. uh, they'll, they'll rotate them through their series. Further down the call sheet, Brian Doyle Murray as Buster Green. This cast has been in so. This has got to be one of the most experienced movie cast uh, rosters I've seen. Uh, before this, he was in Caddyshack, Sixteen Candles, Ghostbusters Two, Christmas Vacation, JFK, and Wayne's World. Uh, <laughs> after this, uh, Jury Duty, Multiplicity, As Good as It Gets, Bedazzled, and Seventeen again, so, and 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 dozens and dozens more. I can't name them all, but that just goes to show you he was in so many big comedies, but also a couple of big dramas too. Well, yeah, I, I mean that's he's again. It's one of those I think that he steps up because of Bill Murray being in the film and the relationship between the two of them as brothers. Um, so you have to, you have to look at that. And I would say a lot of people would be involved in this film, but for that very reason. So I do have a couple casting. What ifs for Phil Connors, the, the role was originally offered to none other than Tom Hanks. And he turned it down one because he felt like he was kind of typecast in that, uh, rom almost romantic comedy typely, which, uh, this movie is a, somewhat of a romantic comedy, although albeit a. It's a, got a little bit of big in there. Guy, guy waking up in a you know a, 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 a uh, extraordinary circumstance, and that he also felt that people would look at him as the, the the good guy too much that they wouldn't buy into him as being the bad guy at the beginning, and they wouldn't they 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 wouldn't be surprised when he made the turn to be good. Uh, and then the second, uh, what if there is Michael Keaton. He turned down the film too, and he actually regrets it. He he says he wishes he would have accepted it, but when he read the script, he just didn't get it, so he passed on it. He, he's such a he would have been great at playing the asshole uh, and be and still being likable, very much in the same way that Bill Murray's capable of doing. Exactly, yeah. Uh, honorable mentions, real quick, uh, to round out the cast: uh, Willie Garson as Phil's assistant Kenny, uh, most known probably as Stanford from Sex in the City. Uh, he was also uh, most recently played Mister C on White. Caller. Uh, Angela Patton as Mrs. Lancaster, uh, Flatliners, Lolita, not the Kubrick one, uh, the remake in 97, and American Wedding. <laughs> I don't think we'll get around to that one. <laughs> no, we'll probably, probably do American Pie. Maybe. We'll, we'll probably do the first one. <laughs> Se second one's pretty solid. 
Uh, Marita Garrity is Nancy. She was in a couple of big movies, Broadcast News, Sleeping with the Enemy, a, a Julia Roberts film. Uh, Rick Overton is Ralph, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, and uh, we got to get around to that. And uh, Robin Duke as Doris the Waitress, uh, uh, most known from SNL, and she was in Multiplicity as well. And this marks Michael Shannon's film debut. I was wondering when you were going to get to that. And my wife and I were watching the film, and near the end of the movie, when Fred and his new wife Debbie come in, there's you're not really paying attention to it because you know it's just a very minor character. You don't really look at his face, but. He says one line that is just like instantly recognized. We're like, wait a second, is that Michael Shannon? And we're blown away to to, to learn that uh, yes, it is. And this was his uh, on screen film debut. Jesus, you you know, just never know what's going to happen. Yeah, Ramus uh, had a good eye for that. And uh, he, one time, he he was so green that uh, Shannon thought he had made Bill Murray mad at one point, and like went to Ramus and you know to like apologize and tell him about it. And Ramus. Uh, kind of saw the situation for what it was and bill murray apologized to uh michael shannon in front of the entire cast and crew from all accounts uh you hear the word around the grapevine or word around the campfire uh bill murray's a, a nice guy oh uh, yeah i would say that this is situation with this film was an outlier given the special circumstances yeah, he's not an asshole like chevy chase oh <laughs> wow shots fired um <laughs> Lastly, Scooter the Groundhog. There, the, the groundhog they used was one that they caught in the wild a few weeks prior to filming. It actually ended up biting Bill Murray's finger twice in the same spot while they were shooting. They wanted to use Puxatawney Phil, but the Puxatawney town officials said no because they were pretty uh, rightfully ticked off that the actual town of Puxatawney wasn't used to, to film the movie. So as they said no to Phil. I'm sure they harbored some uh, animosity, and production actually raised a family of groundhogs for the movie. Oh, didn't know that. That's cool. All right, we'll move on to the stats and accolades of Groundhog Day. Release date, February 12th, 1993. Uh, budget reports uh, are a little a little skewed. It I've seen as low as $14.5 million, up to $30 million for the budget, so I would say it's more than likely closer to $30 million if that number is being reported. Opening weekend, it did make $12.5 million. It was number one at the box office for three straight weeks and would go on domestically to pull in $70.9 million. Uh, no international release, so that was its total take. Yeah, all domestic, no foreign markets whatsoever. Ranked 24th at the box office for 1993. And 1993 was considered a year of family film because Hollywood had been criticized for glorifying violence and sex in movies. So that year we had Free Willy, Last Action Hero, Mrs. Doubtfire, and you also had to go off Jurassic the success. Park. Yeah, that. You also had to go off the success of all the big box office movies. To that point, it had been family films. Star Wars, E.T., Home Alone. That's, that's a good point. I didn't really think about that. And you'll see those shifts in Hollywood, you know, when you know something becomes either too overdone or it becomes popular. It's like the, the tastes of the audience change. It's what's making money. Was Hollywood really doing that because they got some you know new moral compass? No, it's because that's what that's who was buying movie tickets. That's who wanted to go see them. Yeah, and this movie saved Columbia Pictures' ass. Uh, they had had some duds, some misfires, and this movie kind of helped put them back on track financially. 
with a runtime of an hour and 41 minutes really adds to the replay value. Rating PG, pretty vanilla, although there is a body count uh, on screen four times that Phil Connors kills himself in a rather <laughs> uh, funny fashion. <laughs> although it's implied it happened many more times. Yeah, we than only that. get to see four. Uh, but he says at least, what, eight uh, to, uh, to Rita. Yeah, that he's been shot, stabbed, yeah, so many times, blah, blah, blah. No F-bombs. Uh, Hell is said three times. Crap is said once. And Rita slaps Phil ten times. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, whole media of Groundhog Day. Uh, it was released on VHS in September 1993. So about a seven-month gap between the theatrical engagement and uh, the whole media one. It debuted 11th uh, on VHS charts and then rose to number one at the end of September. Was released on DVD in 1998, special edition in 2002, a 15th anniversary edition in 2008, and a Blu ray in 2009. Scores of the film Metascore 72, Cinemascore B, and we may have to stop. This just doesn't even matter. Rotten Tomatoes, 96%. I mean, it's pretty high, but Rotten Tomatoes doesn't mean shit. Yeah, I mean, it's very subjective uh, and can be easily influenced, but I think it's pretty clear that you look at this film and it is uh, a cult classic, a replay value favorite, and one that has stood the test of time and is highly, highly rated. Yeah. Uh, and the critics, uh, for the most part, felt that way. It was generally favorable. Initially, uh, mostly positive reviews. Uh, there was a lot of retroactive reviews that were written uh, years later uh, uh, by none other than Roger Ebert himself. He made it one of his great movies and changed his rating from three stars to four stars and said, quote, is a film that finds its note and purpose so precisely, its genius may not be immediately noticeable. It unfolds so inevitably, so, is so entertaining, so apparently effortless that you have to stand back slap yourself before you see how good it really is unquote yeah i can see why he would have changed it i mean it's it's one of the, it's part of the reason that we wait at least five years before we cover a movie on replay value it's that perceptions will change from the initial release uh, over time and yeah as great as ebert was you, you can't get you can't get them all right uh he still had a pretty good review the first time around, but uh, definitely didn't see his greatness uh, initially. Uh, he even talked about Murray's performance was very in his initial review was very similar to Scrooge, where his character went from selfish to selfless. And you know, Ebert had his initial review that was kind of uh, it was mostly good, like I said, mixed. But uh, famous bad reviews were by Entertainment Weekly, Variety, and Washington Post, so they kind of ate shit <laughs> years later <laughs> for having such bad reviews for this movie. Awards of the film, zero Oscar nominations, one BAFTA nomination, and one win for Best Original Screenplay. Screen Screenplay got most of the glory. Yeah, it, deservedly so. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, one Saturn Award win and five nominations. New York Films Critics Circles Award, one nomination. American Comedy Award, two nominations. And another five wins and nine nominations. I feel like it would get a little bit more recognition if it came out today. Music of the Year for 1993 the Grammy record of the year, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, that is just a, a classic and one that uh, was a cover of a Dolly Parton song, but is much more associated with Whitney Houston now. Uh, and that was also the Billboard's year-end Hot 100 single of 1993 as well. So it had the uh, 
uh, the, the, the crown in both categories there. Now the double crown. The double crown for awards and popularity. Mm. Uh, another person who also did that when it came to 1993 movies, Sir Steven Spielberg, had the number one box office hit with Jurassic Park. Also, the same year, the Oscar winner Best Picture, Chandler's List. Oh, yeah, that's right. Man. So uh, you could say he, as a director, he had the double crown, too. Yeah. Uh, Razzie winner Worst Picture, Indecent Proposal. <laughs> Golly. Uh yeah, TV of the year, number one Nelson scripted TV shows, number uh, was uh, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, followed by Roseanne, Emmy winner Best Drama Series, Picket Fences for a two-peat, and Emmy winner Best Comedy Series, Frasier in his first season. Prices of the year, movie ticket average was $4.14, gas was $1.16, average income was $31,230, and tuition to Harvard was only twenty three thousand five hundred and fourteen bucks. Only? Wow. <laughs> nah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I mean nowadays it's probably would probably be forty or fifty thousand a semester. Yeah, you're probably right. Events of the year: the Brady Bill was passed. The World Wide Web was founded at CERN. Severe blizzard hits the East Coast. Harley Davidson celebrates its ninetieth year, and the Beanie Baby hits the market. Born in 1993, Naomi Scott, Kiki Palmer, Pete Davidson, and Will Poulter. Let's talk about our best scenes and lines from Groundhog Day. Scenes should be pretty easy because it's the same thing over and over again. But uh, let's actually jump right into uh, your runner-up for best scene. Well, what was it, Warren? Well, I just have to say... That- this script is so well written and truthful to the circumstance and so imaginative, much in the same way Back to the Future was. The sequences where he's bad and he manipulates circumstances, and then you also see him being good, I, I, all those sequences are great. Uh, it's almost part of an audible mention there, but you know, he's doing what people would do in this situation, and his character, just to see him evolve and change through the film and not be sentimental or lose his edge while he does it. I, I just love that about this movie and, and the scenes throughout the film. Yeah, it's intentionally kept vague, so you don't know how much time has passed. And But I do love it by, like, day three, I think it is, when he when he's talking to the guys in the in the diner, and he realizes that, you know, oh, let's look at the positive side of things. Uh, that's when it you really kind of say like, oh yeah, I would I would do that in that situation. So yeah, it is mm-hmm. it is somewhat of a guilty pleasure to watch Phil act out on that. Yeah, uh, but my runner-up best scene is the cafe scene between Rita and Phil, and it starts off with him saying, "I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. Because you survived a car wreck. You folks ready to order?" I didn't just survive a wreck. I wasn't just blown up yesterday. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender, I am an immortal. Special today is blueberry waffles. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to believe in me. You're not a god. You can take my word for it. This is 12 years of Catholic school talking. I could come back if you're not ready. How do you know I'm not a god? <laughs> oh, please. How do you know? Because it's not possible. That is also my runner-up for best scene. What? 
Did we just become best friends? Yep. Oh, matched up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it because he finally, the, the situation he is in is so insane and, and, and absolutely crazy, and the chances of somebody believing him and understanding, it, it's, I, I mentioned Heaven Can Wait earlier, much in the same way with, with, with James Dorsey's character and Warren Beatty's character. You, you're not quite sure, he, but he actually ends up believing him. It's just so impossible, and that's the same thing here. And to see him convince her is just so great and entertaining. I, I just loved watching it. Well, I mean, she has a a mind that is that is open to possibility, and he convinces her. I mean, think about put yourself in Rita's shoes. Would you? I mean, what would it take for someone to prove that to you? And I mean, he did all he could uh, to, to 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 make to have her mind to make that leap. But I think you know she would probably be the only person he knows that would be open enough to the possibility. Does she? Does she really believe it? Probably not, but she's like, well, let's just see where it goes. Um, so yeah, that that is just such a great scene. I love Bill Murray's acting in that moment and how he just goes through all of the people in the diner and and knows all the beats of what's going to happen. No telling how many times he's gone through it, how many times he had to relive or talk to those people to to to, to absorb that information. But yeah, it just it's great. It's one of those scenes where he wins the MVP or the co-MVP because it's a it's what a leading man has to do. He carries the movie in that scene in particular, and it, it doesn't work without that performance. One of my favorite uh, sequences with him and Rita both. Uh, they, Bill Murray and Andy McDowell are just great in that scene. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I'll shift gears to my best scene, and um, it is another moment with, uh, or another sequence, I should say with Phil and Rita. And that is the repeating date with Rita that he goes on. Stop it. <laughs> Where he learns from his, his mistake, but I always love it because it always will like cut into like the, the barmaid bringing in all the brews or something like that, where he will he will screw up some bit of dialogue with her and he'll be like, ah, white chocolate. Okay, I got to remember that. No, you know, no white chocolate. And because she's such a tough nut to crack, he has to, re- there's no telling how many times he repeated that day just to, just to earn some infatuation from Rita. My winter best scene is when Phil, it's a, it's a montage. It's when, uh, well, it's kind of just, he does it a couple of times, but it's the last one. It's the climactic one is when Phil destroys the alarm clock. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just the way like he raises his arm up and just throws it down. And there's that like almost crooked look on his face, like a, a, a drunken look of tiredness on his face. It's just hilarious. I do love that because even without having to repeat the same day over and over again, we've all been there where we want to do that to our alarm clocks. More of us probably would if our alarm clock wasn't a, uh, an iPhone or some Android device that cost hundreds of dollars. We, we, we may have made that leap, but uh, yeah, it's, it's great and cathartic to see Phil do it. Of course, had a few honorable mentions. I want to go through uh, the scene where he's playing Jeopardy and he just knows all the answers before, the, <laughs> the, or he knows all the questions to the answers before they're even finished. Lakes and rivers for a thousand. Milky colored from what glacial clay when entering Lake Geneva. This river is clear blue upon exiting. Jim? What is the Rhone? The Rhone, good for $1,000. You are $500. The owner of the bed and breakfast is like, holy cow. Uh, just. Again, awesome moment that you would want to see yourself doing that. 
the moment where he he times the truck robbery where he picks up the bag and walks away with it and then <laughs> and then because you would of course do that too and then goes and buys a uh a mercedes benz or some fancy roll i don't know some fancy car and has his uh clint eastwood get up and <laughs> goes to that movie i mean, just so awesome uh, and then the last one is when uh he sees ned ryerson on the sidewalk and he he says ned and it just Knocks it to F. Yeah, yeah I had that as an audible mention. Yeah, it's great. It's great, yeah. Phil? Phil? Hey, Phil Connors. Ned? I had a couple honorable mentions real quick. Uh, it's, it's near the beginning of the film is when he goes to take a shower when he first gets there, and he, he goes to shift it on, and it's cold water. And then he comes out, and he talks to Mrs. Lancaster, and he just, is there any hot water? And she's like... <laughs> the delivery of bill murray on those little lines like that that's that's where the comedy of the movie comes in if you look at the the movie on its at its core it, it's pretty dark uh but it's because the, it's the comedic subtext the subtext the performances is what brings out the laughter yeah. in those moments yeah uh, my next honorable mention is when uh phil wakes up at the end and it's back to normal and just it's it's nonverbal. it's just the look on his face it's very well acted bill murray crushes it uh and i just love that moment uh and you can see he's going to be happy with uh, rita that would be so tough to act in that moment because watching it i feel like i would weep with joy that it was over i almost cried in joy when i and i was fucking watching the movie <laughs> yeah. on my couch i mean that's yeah. how i was feeling yeah so i mean it's a sub it's subdued but it, the 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 that the moment is finally there for him. Um, but I love the way that it's shot where it, it makes you feel like it's the day repeating, but then you see Rita's arm reach over and turn off the alarm clock. Yeah. And it's a testament to the movie's greatness that it doesn't smack in the face. It isn't sentimental about it. Uh, it's, it's done in such a, a moving and profound way. My last honorable mention is the uh, suicide montage. <laughs> oh yeah. You got, you got to include that in there because after I mean, eventually all of us would reach that point. I don't know how many years into the loop it would be, but we would all we would all get there to try to escape. Um, and again, there's just so many funny ways that Bill Murray does it. He has that deadpan expression when he walks down after driving off the cliff. The next morning, he wakes up, just grabs the toaster up to the bathtub, and just you know, just very matter of fact, like a robot. Uh, and then, and then the next time he just, I love the expression on his face when he steps in front of the truck and just puts his arms up. I don't know. <laughs> uh, he great. has a lot of great moments like that. Again, nonverbal yeah. where he does assist, uh, the, the, the expression on his face, uh, says a lot more than any line could. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our best lines from the film and I will start things off with my runner up. Uh, it is near the end of well it is the end of the sequence where he is um with the two guys from the bowling alley that he drinks with and then he drives them away because he's not drunk uh and they are and he goes down the railroad tracks and almost hits the train but when he finally gets pulled over it's the line it's how he addresses the police officer or he's like he's like let me handle this yeah, uh, three cheeseburgers, two large fries, 
uh, two chocolate shakes, and one large Coke. And some flapjacks. Too early for flapjacks? <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, it's such a great moment. Yeah. What was your runner-up? Uh, my runner-up is... Uh, well, what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. That's good, yeah. It's one of those existential uh, lines that you make you think, but it's, yeah, I like that. Uh, all right, we'll just keep it going. What was your what was your winner for best line? My winner, Ned, I would love to stand here and talk with you, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> again, again, another great comedic exchange with, with, uh, with Ned. Oh man, it's a small role, but man, it's at Ned's expense, one. you know. Oh yeah, of course. I, I love the one where, and this is an honorable mention, but since you're talking about it, where he's like embraces Ned. He's like, "How much time do you for <laughs> whatever?" He's like, "Uh, I, I gotta go." <laughs> uh, <laughs> just completely completely reverses the script on him. Um, uh, my winner for best line is um, when he talks about. Uh, how he is a god and how many times that he has been killed. And he says, I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung, electrocuted, and burned. Oh, really? And every morning I wake up without a scratch on me, not a dent in the fender. I am an immortal. What other take could he possibly have after being through that hundreds and hundreds of times? Yeah, a worthy pick for when or best. This movie's got so many great... Uh, lines and it's so quotable uh, i i, I kind of i figure there was a better chance we we're going to match up on scenes and lines yeah that that's true we had there's a lot to choose from from the lines you're right uh, what honorable mentions did you have uh mine are more of uh a couple of them are exchanges and this movie's got some great exchanges that that's some of the best dialogue um as uh do you ever have deja vu mrs lancaster i don't think so but i could check with the kitchen <laughs> that's yeah the, for the, yeah. the owner of the bread and breakfast uh, mrs lancaster yeah. yeah this day was perfect you just couldn't have planned a day like this and then uh bill murray's phil says well you can it just takes an awful lot of work <laughs> which is true yeah i killed myself so many times i don't even exist anymore yeah which is i think part of the the end of her near where my my best line is yeah it's kind of tied into that yeah and then I could never love someone like you, Phil, because you'll never love anyone but yourself. That's not true. I don't even like myself. Give me another chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, yeah. Um, and then my last honorable mention is uh, sorry, I had five here. That's how quotable it is. Is um, he might be okay, and then the car blows up. Well, no, probably not now. <laughs> <laughs> good Chris Elliott line, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing is, is that even though that you had five honorable mentions and then your runner up and winner, none of them match the ones that I have. I've, so I've just got quick. Uh, That's uh, how fucking quotable this it movie is. is. So I mean, great. following Friday, another great quotable movie we just did a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Uh, when he talks about when he's with, uh, the, the, his newfound friends at the bowling alley near, near the, the beginning of the film. And he says, I was in the Virgin islands once and he meets the girl and talks about they had pina coladas and made love like sea otters on the beach. He's like, that was a pretty good day. Why couldn't I get that day over and over? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point, you know. And my last honorable mention 
is when he begins learning the piano and he's had several lessons at this point. So the piano teacher's like, oh, this is, this is your first piano lesson. He says, yes, but my father was a piano mover. So and just the delivery on that. It just, it has that Bill Murray stamp of humor on it. I, it, it just makes <laughs> me laugh out loud. Uh, that the, it just, it's ridiculous, but uh, at, at the same time, hilarious. Yeah. A lot of great lines. And I'm sure we missed some too. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the Honorable Judge Bob presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Counselors, I look forward to hearing your arguments. Looked at some notes here. Uh, I will tell you this much the people of Punxsutawney, they cannot wait a second longer. Let's jump right into it. Um, on the docket today, we're going to look at the uh, character of Ned Ryerson. And you guys have just, I can't wait to hear your arguments on this. I'm going to hear an argument between uh, Paul Shear versus Ed Helms. So gentlemen, please convince me of Andre versus Stu. I'd like to hear the argument for Andre first. <laughs> <laughs> Andre from the league. I mean, is there an actor that's better at playing characters you just don't want to be friends with? <laughs> <laughs> Despite how friendly they are? I mean, like, Ed Helms, even though he's weird and he's dorky, particularly his character, well, we're talking we're talk- not him as an actor, we're talking about his Counselors, character, Counselors, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's make our arguments strong before we counter. I do believe that you have enough yeah, to go off and copy that. Andre, so. It's bringing a full circle. Yeah. It's bringing a full okay. circle. Uh, but with... Um, as where he's, you want to be friends with him. It's not the case with Paul Shear, particularly. Uh, he, despite how friendly he is, he's just a guy you're going to keep a distance from. And I think it's perfect to embody the character of Ned Ryerson. Yeah, Phil, roll with it. Let me hear Stu's argument. I mean, I, I can't argue with the logic of Paul Shear. It's a great choice, but Ed Helms, he screams insurance salesman at the same time, the annoying guy in the office that you're nice to, but you really. Don't I mean you're nice to just enough to where he kind of stays away. He maybe he bothers you a little too much, but at the same time though, you don't want to go out and have a beer with him. Uh, he is nerdy in all the ways of an annoying insurance salesman. Uh, he's in the Wolfpack. The crew wants to go to Vegas with him, so he's not that bad. No one's going to Vegas with Andre. But they he's in the league though. Andre is in in the league. Yeah, but they constantly ditch him and leave him out of stuff. And I mean, they find ways to pull pranks on him. He, he's he's on the outside. Looking I think in. both of us uh, have the same idea of let's say annoying friend that you don't really want to talk to, and that is that's Ed Helms. He would personify this character in much in the way Stephen Tobolowsky did. I mean, they're, they're both super talented actors, and Paul Shear. We, we, I listen to his podcast. He's obviously a very nice, likable guy, and you want to be a friend with him. I'm just saying he's a very talented actor at playing characters you don't want to be friends with. That's why he's perfect for Ned Ryerson. Gentlemen, before we make a judgment here, I want to go ahead and say that if there's a tie at the end of this, this character is going to take the tiebreaker. Oh, nice. However, if Paul Shear uh, starts yelling out my name down the street, I would gladly jump into that little uh water hole right outside the camp <laughs> if andre's coming my way i'm like going oh my god i went to school with this guy are you kidding so i um and ed helms in the same respect but paul Shear, i just loved the reach on it i thought it was out of left field i loved it i loved it ed helms low-hanging fruit paul Shear was fantastic no I, I will say whenever i saw the heard paul Shear, i said fuck because i knew i'd lost because that's such a perfect choice for it that's good i, I like it 
He's so talented and funny, too. We can't give enough credit to him as an actor. I mean, I saw him in Long Shot with Charlie Theron and Seth Rogen. He has a small part as, like, an anchor on his show, and he's only in a couple scenes, but he's hilarious. That's good. That's good. Let's move into the character of Larry, and we're going to hear arguments between Kyle Mooney and J.B. Smoove. I'd like to hear the argument for J.B. Smoove to kick things off. J.B. Smoove, Leon from Kirby Enthusiasm. Uh God damn it, Larry. Uh, man, are you kidding me? Uh, he'd be perfect as the cameraman having the, the, the one-liners and reacting to situations, and I think he would even bring a, a, even a more comedy to it, particularly with uh, you know the van going over the cliff. There's just a lot of situations where I think J.B. Smooth would, uh, <laughs> would be really funny. Phil, go ahead with Cal Mooney. Yeah, Cal Mooney is the, would personify the character of Larry the cameraman much in the way Chris Elliott did. He's nerdy. He is not supposed to be that funny uh he is the guy that you can see stand up at the end of the groundhog day dinner trying to auction himself off and barely get 25 cents or two bits from an old lady in the crowd that's not jb smooth doesn't mean he's not funny I, I, I mean, he's I mean, funny in yeah, a, uh, he's funny in a different way kyle mooney is very funny he's a cast member on snl but this can he has to personify almost the nerdy quality the type of annoyingness that is needed for the Larry character. JB smooth. He's, he's too smooth. He's too cool. All right, guys, uh, before we get carried away on this one, I think that we came out of the gate swinging and we have two more huge arguments coming up. There's not much to be had back and forth. I think Kyle Mooney was the right casting on this. So I'm going to go ahead and award that to Phil. Yes. Thank you. Fucker. All right. So we're, uh, we're tied up going to the top of the call sheet here and you guys have got some heavy hitters for the next two. So, I, I can't, I, you know, F my life. Thank you, guys. I hate my job. Rita Hansen, Rachel McAdams versus Maggie frickin' Gyllenhaal. So uh, bring it because you're going to need it. Let's hear the argument for Rachel McAdams first. I almost went with Kate Hudson, the queen of rom-com. Mm. Mm. Almost went mm. there, but had to go with Rachel McAdams, one of my favorites, because she can do drama and comedy. She can go back and forth so easily. This part kind of commands that. And also be the heart of the film, which Rachel McAdams has done before. Uh, she's got a heart of gold. And, and as an audience, we follow her wherever she's going to go. And we root for her. And playing the Rita character, which is the main love interest of the film, uh, Rachel McAdams has uh, carried so many movies doing this type of role. I think she'd be great at it. Mm. And Phil, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Well... You have to find, and I mentioned this earlier to Warren, is that it was difficult to recast this role more than more so than any other character in the film. And to me, what spoke to me, what I connected to the actress, to the character with, is having the heart and compassion of the film, but also having the depth of character. And no better actress for that than Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, as someone that you could see Phil having difficulty having to repeat this that same date then making those mistakes over and over again to try to impress her. Maggie Gyllenhaal would have bring that complexity to the character would bring someone that went to college for 19th century, uh, French poetry. Uh, but that could capture the heart of Phil like Rita does. Very seldomly am I going to argue against an actor uh, on the show just because pretty much everyone we name is – there's a reason they're on the list. That's they're right. fucking awesome. Yeah. So uh, that being said, I just think Rachel McAdams is a better fit, much in the sh same way Paul Shear was a better fit than Ed Hel better fit than Ed Helms. Not that Ed Helms is bad, not that he wouldn't be good in the role. Of course he would, but he's better for it, and Rachel McAdams is better uh, for the role than Maggie Gyllenhaal. 
And I love her. Dark Knight's one of my favorite movies. I, I applaud you on your very subtle shit talking. That was brilliant. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I, 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 I must say that I did consider Rachel McAdams. It was actually between both of these actresses. Ultimately, I went with Maggie Gyllenhaal um, because as far as what I saw in the character, I felt she most closely related to. Phil, poor choice of words. Poor choice of words. I was uh, torn between the two, but when you're siding with your brother, it does go ahead and drive the fact that Rachel McAdams is the right choice. I I wasn't siding with him. I was just saying that, yeah. You just said you were torn between Rachel McAdams and Maggie Gyllenhaal, and he has Rachel McAdams down. But then I said that Gyllenhaal was the better one. Uh, It's going to put Warren leading up going into the final here. And guys, you have got Phil Connors. Let's get right into it. Steve Carell versus Jason Bateman. I love both of these. I want to hear the argument for Jason Bateman. (laughs) Kick it off. Uh, Love Jason Bateman for this because this is a guy that has to play the antagonist and the protagonist. Bateman has proven that he's got the range to do both. You can buy a hint to him as a schmarmy asshole near the beginning who feels like he's uh, too good for the weather man role that he's in. He wants to rise above his station and feels like he is better than his colleagues around him. Uh, But at the same time, you can see the evolution of the character. He can play the comedy moments. He can play the drama moments. Uh, He's perfect. Warren. Uh, Jason Bateman is a great actor and he's made the transition from doing a comedic show, the rest of development to a dramatic show in Ozark. Uh, But, when he does, even when he did comedy or when he does comedy, he always plays the straight man. He's not the person being ridiculous or necessarily being funny. He's reacting to the funny person or situation around him. And that is why Steve Carell is a much better fit for this character. Steve Carell is great at playing a, a ordinary person in an extraordinary circumstance. Uh, and Steve Carell is hilarious doing it. And he has the comedic and dramatic chops, much in the same way that Bill Murray does, which I think is a prerequisite if you're going to portray Phil Connors in this movie. I got to tell you, Bill Murray, top of his game, right? He's an A-list actor when this movie comes out. Yeah. So you guys have done exceptionally well picking guys in their prime, in their acting prime with this going on. Phil, do you have any counter against uh, Steve Carell? Uh, my, my only counter is not against his capabilities of pulling the, the role off, only that he might shy away from it for the same reason that uh, you know Tom Hanks did whenever he was originally offered the role, and that it's almost too typecast. He wants to stay away from anything that could put him in that Michael Scott-type bucket, and I feel that he would be going in a different direction from the role and wouldn't be interested in it, uh, not necessarily that he wouldn't be a good fit for it. Jason Bateman, that straight, buttoned up, bulletproof persona that also can be made so human in the end of it, I thought was just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So this one is going to go to uh, Phil. Yeah. Congratulations. Nice. At the same time, uh, did you ever think Andre was going to win you anything in life? Warren? Jesus Christ, I forgot about that. Oh my God, you got the tiebreaker with Andre. <laughs> I know, the, the, the biggest loser, <laughs> the biggest loser from the league oh was God. the critical recasting here uh, i believe th- that's three in a row for me i'm on a three-peat right now thanks to andre motherfucker nonetheless um recasting court is adjourned awesome awesome thanks bud all right fan theory time and less of a fan theory more of a uh, discussion of a long-standing fan theory 
to which there is real no definitive answer, but I wanted to get your take on it, Warren. And it's um, one that has been debated for decades now, and is that how long was Phil stuck in the time loop? And initially, the uh, director, Harold Ramis, said that it was 10 years, about 10 years. But he has since gone back and said, no, that's too short. It would have had to have been much longer. Think about how the, you know, how many times he had said he had killed himself, how many things he had mastered over that time. And there's been YouTube videos, articles that try to count the number of days in the loop. Some people say as little as 10 to 12 years. Um, some people say, including the author, that it could be 30 to 40 years, um, maybe even longer. So I, I was wanting to, what, what do you think, Warren? Well, the original idea was for Phil Connors to live in February 2nd for 10,000 years. That was the original conception uh, with the timeline. Uh, but then, as you said, uh, Harold Ramis said it was only a decade. And then uh, later, he said it was 30 to 40 years because after some cinephiles went and broke down the film, uh, did a deep dive in, into trying to calculate and figure that out, uh, they came up with the number 33 years and 358 days, uh, which that is 12,403 days uh, stuck in the same loop. That is a pretty specific uh, number of years. That not only to pick the number of uh, years, but the number of days. I don't see how someone could settle on that. But I mean, I think that just depending on the skill of someone, just mastering the piano alone uh, could, would, would take a very, very long time. Uh, and you know, he's a skilled player by the end of the film. But just think of how long he had gone through the, the, the loop before he even started to think about playing the piano. So I, I don't know. To me, it's up in the air, but I would say that the people who put down the 10 to 12 years is low. I would say it has to be at, at least 30 years, uh, but but more than, more than likely more. Yeah. In the original script, uh, Phil Connors, actually every day that he was in there, he would, uh, in the loop, he would read a page from a book and at one point he gets upset because he's run out of books to read. So you have to think of how many days that is. So I don't know. It, it's up in the air, but it, it, uh, it's a long time. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, 34 years. 34 years. Okay. Is that your scientific estimate? Yeah, because it's 33 years of 358. I mean, 365 in a year. That's, seven. That's a week shy of uh, 34 years. Let's just round it up. Go with 34. There you go. All right. I'll say it's longer, but anyway. And we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of Groundhog Day, a rare permanent fixture in pop culture and American cinema. Uh, it's aged like a fine wine, and its standing has only grown as more and more time has surpassed. It's considered one of the greatest comedies of all time, a pop cultural touchstone. One that's definitely been appreciated more as the years have gone on. Uh, but you look at, uh, you know, like the fan theory we just talked about and the themes that go into the movie itself, just how much people get out of this film by repeated viewings uh, so that it, it, it specifically is not, doesn't show anything that is, um, I guess, could lock it into a certain decade. That was, it was by design that there's nothing that inherently 90s about the movie. And it's so that you could look at it. Oh, that's a good point. 
Yeah. And it's so that you could watch it now and it, it remains timeless in a way that it was for Phil Connors going through the time loop. Uh, but that you can, you can, you can more closely, I guess, attach yourself to the themes of the movie and what's going on rather than some perceived current events. Yeah. It's themes are timeless, uh, spirituality, love, morality, wisdom, and time. And of course we have to mention it's been widely uh, discussed of the religious uh, allegory uh, for Buddhists, Christians, and Jews, the idea of rebirth, uh, which uh, that's, uh, you could certainly make that argument when you, when you watch the movie. Well, again, it goes back to this film has been replayed so many times by so many people at that point, you you look in and grab themes out that you want to see in it. Too. There's going to be a religious connection, even if the idea itself spawned from somebody wondering what a vampire would do with the mortal life. I mean, that's where the idea started. So I think it was just, it wasn't meant to have that type of theme or any type of religious undertone, but it connects to so many people in that way. Of course. Well, I think uh, when a film uh, is a, a truthful human story uh, at its core, even if it has supernatural elements, uh, it, it has so many layers that people can relate with it in their own way or own culture. And I think that's an example. Uh, one thing it touches on is can a person change and can they change if they were given more time than they would in their mortal life? Uh, can they become a different person? And you do see Phil Connors go through that. So it does grapple with those issues as well as how, how people can go from bad to good. And that was intended by Ruben when he wrote that. He wanted to have a character that was stuck in almost like an adolescent frame of mind so that they could go through that transformation. Uh, redemp- uh, redemption. Yeah, in, in a sense, redemption, change, yeah. Loving others more than you love yourself, et cetera, yeah. Film has had a, a, a significant impact on pop culture, as we mentioned. The term Groundhog Day, uh, the expression to describe a bad situation that's long or repetitive. I, you take it for granted when you hear that instantly everybody knows what you're talking about. It's a repeating sequence of events. It's like, you know, we've talked about that being a phrase that whenever you have something associated with you in that way, you transcend pop culture. Like when you say somebody is the Michael Jordan of something, you instantly know what they're referring to when you say like something is a, like a Groundhog Day event or, you know, it's like the Groundhog Day of something happening. You know what they mean when they say that. Yeah. I mean, the phrase has been used by musicians, athletes, actors, and even the president of the United States, Bill Clinton. Uh, this uh, can't go out without saying that this was a transition point for the careers of both Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. Not only would they not work together anymore, but Ramis legitimized himself as someone that went from more goofy comedy films uh, to someone that could uh, take on more creative projects. Uh, yet, yes, still rooted in comedy, but he he had much more creative freedom after Groundhog Day. And then we, you know, of course, Bill Murray would go on to do uh, less straight up comedy roles like Rushmore, the Wes Anderson films that he has participated in, Lost in Translation, where he won and, uh, had an Academy Award nomination. So, very much a transition point in both of their careers. Yeah, when you look at a lot of the, not only the Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, when you look at a lot of the actors in the film, though, it's when you look at what they're known for, uh, it's a lot like uh, Pulp Fiction. I mean, most of the actors, uh, Groundhog Day is right there at the top of the list, as as is the movie they're most known for. Yeah. This movie also had a significant influence on other filmmakers, David O. Russell, Jay Roach, uh, who said this film changed him. 
Uh, it's had a direct impact on other fantasy comedies, uh, Liar Liar, Truman Show, Click, uh, and even even other time loop movies. Uh, what Edge of Tomorrow, Happy Death Day, Source Code, and uh, uh, and this is known. Uh, the, you know these movies that this um, a structure and a screenplay. Uh, it's known as the quote Groundhog Day loop. Yeah, it's almost like uh, whenever Die Hard came out, you had that run of action movies. So it's exactly Die Hard on a bus or Die Hard on this. It's like, oh, it's Groundhog Day with the, the war, you know, Edge of Tomorrow, which is hey, a hey, phenomenal movie. You, you leave Speed out of this. Speed stands out on its own right. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, that, die, die Hard on a on a boat, Die Hard on a plane. Uh, but I, yeah. much in the way that it just speaks to the um, the great. The greatness of a simple formula, and if it's done correctly, how good it can be. Speed took the formula, made it great. Edge of Tomorrow took the formula, made it great. It's a phenomenal film, but you yeah. can't say it. You you cannot deny the influence Groundhog Day had on it, and the the list of movies, television episodes that it has uh, gone on to inspire is too numerous to list them all. Uh, but it was the you know, in, in a way, the first of its kind, and that it spawned so many recreations or so many versions of that idea. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I can't name them all, but I will try. It has 330 connections with other media and pop culture. It, it spoofed uh, in Bruce Almighty and American Dad a couple of times. I guess today isn't this Groundhog's day. Yeah. Down, 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 down. What are you doing? CSI Miami. Caruso? Just get your scraper, Darren. And it's referenced in SNL, Married with Children, Truman Show, Charlie's Angels, and one of your f- replay value favorites, Donnie Darko. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's timeless, and it's uh, one that uh, will continue to be referenced for that reason. Um one way that it also has uh, gone on in, in in celebration is through Groundhog Day festivals, which were uh, quite a small thing prior to the movie coming out. But even in Punxsutawney, the year after the movie came out, the celebration of that festival went from a few hundred, maybe a few thousand, to over 35,000 people. Um, so you do see celebrations of the film uh, uh, in Puxatawney and Woodstock, Illinois, he, even in other countries, uh, it's that it's that appreciated. Yeah, this film has had a huge impact on both Woodstock, Illinois, and Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Uh, it it put those towns on the map. Uh, you know, Vegas was already on, already on the map, but Hangover had a huge impact on the popularity of Vegas. It kind of revitalized uh, it in a way. And um, uh, these both these towns, you know, a lot of people hadn't heard of, even though you know Woodstock, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles was filmed there. So it in '87, so it did have that going for it. Uh, all time list. I was surprised at how many all time lists it made. Uh, I'll just n- name some of the top ones. Twenty uh, seventh on the Writer Guild of America's 101 Greatest Screenplays. It was placed on AFI's 2000 list, Top 100 Funniest American Movies. 55 on BFI's all-time list. Number 4 on BBC's Culture 100 Best Comedies of All Time. Number 8 on AFI's 10 Greatest Films in the Fantasy Genre. Empire listed at 259 on, on their 500 Greatest Movies of All Time list. Premier voted at one of the 50 greatest comedies of all time, and it was selected by the Library of U.S. Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2007. 
And you can't mention the film to- without m- talking about uh, potential sequels. There was an idea for one that was quickly shot down the year it came out in 1993. Uh, and then there was a musical that was released, uh, actually made its Broadway debut in 2017. Uh, the book, uh, as it's called uh, for, for for plays, the book was was written by uh, Ruben. He had worked on right? it. Yeah, he had worked on it for years and years because he wanted to he, that was the only thing that he could do that Columbia Pictures didn't own didn't have the rights to uh so uh, over the over the years he did uh, eventually get enough interest got it made uh it would some uh, Lawrence Olivier awards uh for best actor as well as best new musical and it was nominated oh, uh, shit. His, yeah and it was actually nominated for best book at the 2017 Tonys so Ruben got a, a Tony uh, Award nomination out of that. So it was critically acclaimed, uh, believe it or not. And it also had a 2019 video game sequel. That's the closest we're going to get, I guess, to a Groundhog Day sequel uh, called Groundhog Day, Like Father, Like Son. Where it followed Phil Jr. when he got stuck in a time loop of his own. And lastly, there was the 2020 Super Bowl commercial, which doesn't technically count as a sequel, but it's probably the most we're ever going to get. And Scott Tobias of the AV Club summed it up best when he said, quote, a hilarious and unexpectedly profound comedy, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. And we'll see you then. Bye. This has been a Waldo Pickles production. 